Boy, I tell you, we, we sing, we've sung that song before and we've sung it a number of times, but man, if you let it wash over you, what it's saying, how God takes the difficult things, God takes the impossible things, God takes the less than desirable things and turns them into something good. Amen. And he's the only one who can. I think of even the season we're in with fall, and I'll talk more about fall in a minute, how uh, you know, what is happening with these trees is they're turning these blazing beautiful colors is that they're dying, <laughs> right? The leaves are dying. And so God can take even something like death and make it beautiful, but he does so through resurrection. And I didn't plan on any of that today, but I, it's just as that song was going, that kind of struck me. And I think that's something that we need to cling to as you know, life comes, that God can take the ashes and turn them into something beautiful. We remember that today. So, I think today we are going to do a bit more of a traditional style sermon uh, as opposed to um, than what we have been doing, so not so much a DBC today. However, uh, don't get cozy. <laughs> don't zone out because I will want some interaction here uh, at some point and I'll let you know when. But um, it seems though that we are, again, in the full swing of fall. Uh, the weather is getting a bit crispier out there. We're starting to see some uh, leaf color and leaf change. And of course, one of the like, symbols or trappings of fall, of course, are pumpkins. Is anyone beginning to decorate in and out of your house with pumpkins? Yeah, we got some pumpkins going on around there. Well, I recently read this past week uh, several articles of something that happened recently about a record-breaking pumpkin. And I think we have a picture, a slide that we can show of this. A guy named Travis Granger of Minnesota uh, grew a world record-breaking pumpkin in terms of how much it weighs, right? So he took this pumpkin all the way from Minnesota to uh, Half Moon Bay in California, and it's a record-breaking pumpkin that weighs 2,749 pounds. That's a big old pumpkin. That is a smashing pumpkin right there. That is just, that is incredible, kids to the 90s. Uh, um, that uh, this, this, this pumpkin, someone did the math on it, could make about 680-something pies. I mean, that is a massive, it, it's awesome. It's like, uh, so, but do you think that Travis Gringer just woke up one morning and just decided, you know, I think I want to grow a big old pumpkin. And so I'm just going to go out to my field and scatter some pumpkin seeds and just see what happens. And the bippity boppity boo, you got this big old pumpkin. Is that, you think that's what happened? No, I think a pumpkin that weighs more than a ton, I think that requires a bit of intentionality, don't you think? As a matter of fact, he spent $15,000 feeding and watering this pumpkin up to 12 times a day. So it wasn't just, okay, we'll see if pumpkin happens. No, he used his time, his money, his energy to see to it that he would get this big pumpkin. Now, but let's ask this question, and it's very important. Did Travis Gringer make and cause this pumpkin to grow? No. He is not the one who makes the sun shine, and he's not the one who controls the weather conditions. He's not the inventor of photosynthesis. But what, what did he do, though? He cultivated the conditions to promote the growth. And that's very important. Um, I think he's, uh, the article says that he, uh, 
he named this pumpkin Michael Jordan. Because <laughs> Jordan, of course, in many people's minds, the greatest basketball player of all time. He thinks this is the greatest pumpkin of all time, right? So not only, so what he did, though, is that he cultivated this pumpkin. But not only did he cultivate it, he displayed it. In other words, it's not this secret that he kept in his backyard. You know, because if he did, we wouldn't know about it today. He wouldn't have his name in this record book of, right, this world championship pumpkin. Uh, he, but what he did instead was put this pumpkin on a, you know, a, on a trailer, drove 35 hours from Minnesota all the way to California through mountains, dodging elk and everything, and put it into this contest where he won $30,000. So in case you felt bad about that 15,000 he spent, he did make up for it, right? But, but he did two things, and I think it's very important. These are two key words. He cultivated this pumpkin, and he displayed this pumpkin. Cultivated and displayed. Those are two very important words. And, and I think when it comes to our faith, those are two very important words as well, because to cultivate and display are our keys of how we work out what God has worked in us. Let me say that again. To cultivate and display are two keys for us to work out what God has worked into us. And hopefully that'll make sense as we go on. But we're gonna continue our study in Philippians. Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 12. Paul writes, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. A couple of observations. Uh, this passage begins with the word therefore. In a general rule of Bible study, there's a question to ask whenever you run into the word therefore. Who knows what that question is? Yeah, I love it. I heard it from a number of people. What's the therefore therefore? In other words, when you run into the word therefore, you have to consider what has gone on in front of that therefore. And so last week we talked about this huge passage in Philippians 2 that talks about the humility of Christ, the obedience of Christ, and the lordship of Christ. So we talked about Christ as our uh, example and as our Lord. So Paul is now saying because of that, in light of that, as a result of that, therefore live this way, continue to obey. Not just like, and continue to obey, not as a child who only does what, does what they're told when mom and dad are looking, <laughs> but have some integrity, be consistent. And, but the other thing to observe 
is to consider the posture that Paul has toward the, toward the Philippians. And, that, and that's very important because he says this phrase, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it's a bit of a jarring phrase. I, am, am I alone in that? And if we don't know the context or the posture of the person speaking that, it can sound like something a drill sergeant would say, right? I mean, it sounds like something, something that someone is yelling at you while you're doing push-ups, right? But we need to understand the posture that Paul had towards the Philippians in saying this. And so we remember from chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection in the original language is connected to uh, intestines. <laughs> in other words, Paul is saying, I love you from the depths of my bowels. I love you with all of my guts, which isn't really what we would say, but it, it does convey this deep love that Paul has for these people. And not only that, but as we read in this passage, Paul often in Philippians, refers to people as brothers and sisters. Here, he calls them my dear friends. The original language uh, he, for my dear friends here is agapetos. Agapetos. Now, I don't know if we have Greek scholars in the room. I'm certainly not one. But that word agapetos, is there another Greek word that we've talked about a number of times in the past that comes to mind when you hear the word agapetos? Yeah, good, nice and loud. They said agape, right? Which is this kind of like deep form of love. Paul has a deep love for these people. So it's very important for us to consider Paul's posture as he tells these people to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is coming from a place of love because he wants what's best for these people. He's not just yelling at them to do better. But from a deep place of love, he's telling, us these, telling them these things. So now, let's come to this phrase. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean? Because I think we can read that and there are two mistakes that we can make with it and we can you know, end up on a ditch on either side. One way to, one way to read it is, is people have read this and they focused on the words work and salvation. And the way they work it out in their head is that you work for your salvation. That, in other words, you have to merit God's favor and earn God's favor. You have to earn your way to be with God. And we, so we can call that the ditch of legalism. And of course, that is how uh, a majority of works-based religion works out in the world. However, we have to remember that Scripture interprets Scripture. And we remember that this same Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 that it is by grace you are saved and not of works so that no one can boast. So Paul here is not saying work for your salvation. It's not that you earn salvation. So we need to avoid the ditch of legalism. But on the other hand, if we go to this we can make this overcorrection to where we end up on this other, in this other ditch to where we say, okay, great, by grace we are saved and so God's taking care of it. That means I can sit back and I can put my feet up. This is what you could call um, bus stop theology or waiting room theology. 
It's simply that God does all the work, and now I, I, don't, have to, you know, I don't have to do anything, right? I could, I could just sit here and wait for God to take me to heaven. That's a ditch on the other side of the road. So if we have legalism over here, what we have over here is laziness. We want to avoid the ditches of legalism and laziness. And so what we're not saying, though, is that you earn your salvation, but we're also not saying that you just get to sit there and do nothing. From the beginning, God has created humanity for relationship and responsibility. Relationship and responsibility. So I think, though, it would be helpful if we consider this word salvation and what Paul means by it and how he uses it throughout the New Testament. Because when we hear the word salvation, often what we think is this kind of moment of conversion, this moment where we uh, put our faith in Jesus, and in that moment we are transferred from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. We are transferred from being a child and an object of wrath to an adopted son and daughter of the living God, and, and we are secured, our eternity is secured in being with him, right? So we would call that salvation, and in a lot of ways, that's true. But that's not the only way that Paul and the New Testament writers use the word salvation. There is a past, present, and future tense that it's used. So, so a lot of people have put it like this. I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Or to put some more theological language of it, and I think we have that as a slide to kind of uh, spell it out, is that we have been saved from the penalty of sin, that is, that is justification. We have been justified. That is something that happens in the past, right? And then presently, we are being saved from the power of sin. We are being more and more free and, uh, um, from sin and more and more conformed to the image of Christ because that's a major goal of God. Yes, to be with him, but a major goal is to conform you and to make you like Jesus, but that is a process and that is called sanctification. But then there is a future tense that I will be saved from the presence of sin. One day I will live in a resurrected body in a renewed creation where the effects of sin are no longer present. That is glorification. That is a future event. So, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Or if you wanna put it in terms of righteousness, God has in the past made me positionally righteous. He is currently, has me in a process of making me practically righteous. But in the future, at glorification, I will be perfectly righteous, both positionally and practically. A theologian named um, Sam Storms puts it this way. I really appreciate the way that, that he puts it. He says, that the sanctifying grace of God is not a divine kiss that suddenly transforms a frog into a handsome prince. Holiness is not something that falls from heaven willy-nilly. It is what God produces in us through certain instruments, experiences, and means that he has ordained, and it always involves struggle and effort and focus and sacrifice and energetic commitment on our part. When God works antecedently in you, it doesn't make our effort unnecessary. 
it makes it possible. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. God is the one providing the power, but we have to plug into it, right? Just like you don't grow a 2,000 pound pumpkin by accident, you do not become like Jesus on accident, right? To work out your salvation is to live, in the words of Paul, a, in a manner worthy of the gospel. It is to become more and more like Jesus. Discipleship is about imitation and becoming like Jesus and becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. And that doesn't happen by accident. Yes, God will be the one to work that out and provide uh, and bring about that fruitfulness, but it's on us to cultivate it. It's on us to join God in that work of cultivating and making ourselves available to that work. Now, if you will please excuse the sports metaphor. I'm sorry, but it's the best that I got. Uh, I, I said that that pumpkin was nicknamed Michael Jordan. Uh, but Michael Jordan, of course, again, considered many to be the best basketball player of all time. And I remember an interview that Michael Jordan gave where he, he talked about all these players that he would have loved to have played one-on-one, -on -one, like both he and his prime and them and their prime. He's like, I would have loved to have played Jerry West or, or Dr. J in their prime. But then he makes this comment. He says, I think the only player that could even potentially beat me would be Kobe Bryant because he steals all my moves. Isn't that great? So it, it seems that as though a young Kobe Bryant told himself, man, I want to be great at the game of basketball. And the way that I define greatness in terms of basketball is that man right now that people call MJ. And if I'm going to become like MJ, it's going to be more than me just putting on his shoes. If I'm going to become like him and imitate him, I'm going to have to develop his habits and his practices. I'm going to have to develop his work ethic. It's not just going to happen because, you know, all the sports pundits have said I'm the next big thing. No, I'm going to have to work for it. And the work ethic of Kobe Bryant is legendary. Like, you know, he was on the uh, 2008 Olympic team, the, the gold medal Olympic team from America. So he's playing with, with his teammates are some of the best basketball players in the world. And they commented, you know, we would just be getting out of bed and Kobe had already had two to three hours of practice already under his belt for that day. I mean, he would, he would be practicing before the gym lights were even on. There were days where he would refuse to leave until he made 800 shots. So he sold himself, if I'm going to be like Michael Jordan, I'm going to have to develop the practices and habits of Michael Jordan. And what this brings to mind is this passage um, throughout the Gospels, about the uh, after the Transfiguration, one of them is um, Mark chapter 9, where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and his disciples are trying to cast out a demon, but they're not having any success. So, of course, Jesus goes and he ends up doing it. And afterwards, they have this conversation. Jesus, why couldn't we cast out the demon? And Jesus says to them, this kind won't come out except through prayer. Now, I don't, 
instinctively, I don't think that what Jesus is saying is, well, you guys didn't bow your heads and say, please, God, help us with this demon. I think what Jesus is saying is that in order to have the results, in order to have the effect on the world that I have, you have to develop my practices. You have to develop my rhythms and my habits. Because what prayer does is prayer cultivates, it fosters close intimacy with God, and it builds your faith. And he's saying to them, you need to develop a practice of prayer like I have so that you can cultivate the kind of faith that allows you to have this kind of effect in the world. So if we're going to learn to imitate Jesus, we have to develop the practices and habits of Jesus. Because it's so easy for us just to sit back and, and to think like, well, Jesus was God. He was divine. He didn't have to work at anything. That's not true. While it is true, and we just read it in the passage last week, earlier in Philippians 2, that though Jesus indeed is, shares a nature with God, he took on the limitations of humanity. So that means that Jesus had to read and learn and memorize and meditate on Scripture it wasn't just downloaded into him just because he was divine. He had to learn these things like human beings learned them, and he devoted himself to learning the scriptures. Jesus would spend the whole night and early mornings praying to the Father, and if Jesus needed to pray, <laughs> how much more do we need to pray? Jesus fasted, he meditated, he celebrated festivals. He worshiped. Jesus had a rich life of developing habits and uh, spiritual disciplines that cultivated his relationship with the Father. And if we want to have that kind of intimacy and relationship with the Father, we have to cultivate the practices that Jesus did. So that has something to do with, you know, uh, working out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is to cultivate your life, to live out of that salvation, to live out of what is true of you. And this part about fear and trembling, I don't think it has to do with anxiety. I think it has to do with a, a, a reverent awe and sobriety. And I don't know about you, but I need to be checked here because I know that in my life, there are lesser things that I take too seriously and sacred things that I'm flipping about. I mean, how many times have we expressed righteous indignation towards referees making a bad call? <laughs> we took a non-serious moment way too seriously. Is that right? But then there's times where I could just be so casual and so flippant about the things of God. So I think this passage of, this, this message of fear and trembling is a good check for us to consider what is it that we take seriously? What is it that we hold as important and what do we value? So we cultivate. But not only do we cultivate, we display. We display. We display this faith. How, how do we express this salvation that has happened to us? Well, Paul gives us an example. Paul helps us to apply what it is he's saying. He's saying, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without complaining. Now, we think of grumbling or complaining and arguing, and we, and we think like, well, yeah, it's really annoying when our little kids do that, isn't it? But it's more than that. It's more serious than that, isn't it? It's, 
grumbling and arguing has a, have, they have a way of exposing your spiritual condition. Now, let's think about this. Where else in the scriptures do we hear about the words grumbling and arguing? In the Exodus, yeah. Seems that here with this paragraph, Paul is uh, baking a cake and he's using the ingredients, uh, a cup of Exodus, a tablespoon of Deuteronomy 32 and a dash of Daniel chapter 12. He's baking this cake. He's putting this all together. He's making us think back to the Hebrew scriptures and the history of the people of God. And, and one of the first times we read, so here Paul says, work out your salvation. Where is the, like, among the first times we hear about God as Savior? The Exodus. But did the people of the Exodus, the people of Israel, God's covenant people, did they work out that salvation? Did they live in light of that salvation? Not always, and one of the ways they didn't was through grumbling and arguing. Uh, did you bring us out here to die? Slavery was more fun than this. We had pots of meat when we were enslaved. Over and over again, God rescues them from slavery. He parts the sea. He brings bread from heaven. He brings water from the rock. He makes bad water good. He brings meat in the form of quail. Over and over again, God is showing his faithfulness, his willingness to provide, but what do they do? Again and again, they grumble. We don't even know where this Moses is. He's been on this mountain. Let's take our gold and make cows out of them and worship them. Oh, but we don't grumble today, do we? It's so, I mean, we can look back at the people of Israel and go like, what were you guys thinking? No, there's a reason that there's a hashtag called first world problems, isn't there? <coughs> Let's think about this. What, what is the era in which we live? An era of running water. An era of climate control with air conditioning and heat. An era of Wi-Fi, where all of the knowledge of humans is available at your fingertips. We have all these conveniences, and yet we are among the most happy, unhappy, and entitled generations in history. They didn't put enough caramel flavor in my Starbucks this morning. I mean, I would, I would love to take a survey about what you grumbled about this morning, but I'm going to leave it. I'm gonna, just going to leave it alone. We grumble, and you, but you know what? What's the deal with grumble and complaining? What's so serious about it? Why does it expose our spiritual condition? It's, an, it's evidence of ungratefulness, right? Because when you're ungrateful, you're entitled. And when you're entitled and you don't get your way, you grumble and you argue. Paul writes in Romans 1 where he says, though, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor did they give thanks to him. And so their foolish hearts were darkened, right? God gives them over to a debased mind, and that led them to idolatry. Paul writes that one of our biggest spiritual problems as humanity is that we are not grateful to God. 
We don't practice gratitude. We feel entitled. And so therefore, we forget our position in the story and we elevate ourselves. And when we don't get what we want, we grumble. But then, Paul goes, if they, you don't grumble, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Here, Paul is riffing off of Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, where Moses is talking to this uh, generation that's about to enter the promised land, and he's essentially telling him and warning them, don't be like your parents, because your, your parents grumbled and argued, and as a result, they were not children of God, and they were a crooked and wicked generation. But here Paul is doing the, the reverse of that. He's flipping it. He's saying, so that you don't grumble and complain like the people in the wilderness, so that you will be children of God in the middle of this crooked and wicked generation. And then he says, then in which you will shine like the stars as you hold out the word of life. You among them you will shine like the stars. Here he's riffing on Daniel chapter 12, talking about one of the first mentions of resurrection in the Hebrew scriptures. Daniel 12, two says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Paul is saying, you are to be different. As you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you are to be different. There is to be a contrast. You're not to be like a ghost walking in fog where no one notices the contrast of white on white. You are to be a contrast like, a, like stars in a dark sky. Stars seem to shine brighter the darker it gets, right? I always have this joke where uh, Dayton is the city of three stars because that's about all you can see with all the lights around, right? But the further you get away from the city, the darker the sky is and then the brighter the stars are. But you are to be different. There is to be contrast between you and this crooked and wicked generation. And one of the ways to do that is to be thankful rather than grumbling and arguing. Amen. Imagine this. Imagine what it would be like if strangers, when they ask us, hey, how you doing? We usually say things like, oh, I'm fine, or I'm okay, or I'm, I'm making it, you know, one day at a time, right? What if we said to strangers who ask us how you're doing, what if we said to them, I have a lot to be thankful for? How might they respond? They might say, oh, okay, cool, great. They might ask you what it is you have to be grateful for. Or they might say, you're really weird. You know what? That's what Paul says. Be weird, right? You're to be different. And why, why is that weird? Because we live in a generation of grumbling and arguing, not gratitude. Are you, are you willing to be weird? Amen. That's so good to hear. But then Paul talks about, he uses this phrase, he says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifices and the service of your faith, I will rejoice. He's saying, if I have to spend my life, and if that entails suffering, if all of my life is spent for the good things that come from your faith, that is worth it to me. What we have here 
is about what Paul values. Paul here is valuing eternal things, and that is countercultural, isn't it? You can stick out like a sore thumb. You can, you can have lots of contrast between you and this crooked and wicked generation by what you value when you value eternal things. So now, there's a question that I want us all to think about. And this is where I can, um, I'm kind of going to ask for a bit of uh, interaction. So if I could, I, sh I should have done this before. If I could get some mic runners. Uh, Christina, would you be a mic runner for me? And uh, Joseph, would you be willing as well just to be a mic runner? Uh, we're going to give some time to think about these two questions. What stirs your affections for Jesus? And what robs you of your affections for Jesus? Does that make sense? Because those things that rob you of your affections for Jesus are going are gonna to lead you to grumbling and arguing, right? And, and what, I'm, what I mean by what robs you of your affections for Jesus, this isn't an opportunity for you to passively, aggressively complain about your spouse and how they eat with their mouth, mouth open and everything like that. It's not, it's not that. It's the, what are the things that you have some control over? What are the habits that you ha find yourself in your life that rob you of your affections for Jesus? I'll go first. What stirs my affections for Jesus are things like taking long walks on a day like today with all this color and thinking about the many things that I have to be grateful for, as basic as my shoes. There's nothing special about my shoes, but I'm just grateful to have them. Grateful that I have legs that move because not everyone does. Grateful that I can breathe. And so we start as basic as that and build out from that because if we don't, if we're not thankful for breath and our ability to move and, and walk, we, we're not entitled to those things, right? So practicing gratitude, one, those are one things that ex, stir my affections for Jesus so that I recognize these good gifts and pointing me to a good giver. But what robs me of my affections for Jesus? I've shared this uh, a time before, as um, overuse of social media. Uh, thankfully, it's not really a problem right now because I got hacked and my social media was disabled. <laughs> All right, thanks, you know, like, thanks, okay, good. Thank you, random person from Spain who hacked my account or whatever. Yeah, that was a funny email to get. But anyway... <laughs> But I know that when I was in, into that, when I sought this kind of escape route from reality, feeding on social media, I never walked off of this thinking, oh, thank you, Jesus. I, usually what it was was like, oh, that's a hot take. Oh, oh that's, a, that's quite a strange opinion. Or, oh, oh, man, that person seems to have a better life, you know, right now. Like, there, it was never, I wasn't feeding myself good things. It was causing all sorts of thorns and thistles and weeds to grow in the garden of my heart. So it was robbing me of my affections for Jesus through distraction. And, and I wasn't like doing anything prayerfully, right? So that's the examples that I'm talking about. What kind of habits stir your affections for Jesus that allow you to cultivate what it looks like to work out your salvation? And what are the habits that you have that stir up grumbling and complaining. I want to give you 30 seconds, and then we'll have some mic runners go around to a, a handful of people to raise their hands. And I, I know that this is a bit vulnerable. You know, usually when we do DBC, it's kind of like, oh, this is just what I saw in the text. But this is about your life, and it's a bit vulnerable. But you know what? Confession is good. Public confession is good. So please don't leave me hanging. Yeah? 
So let's take 30 seconds to consider the two questions. What stir my affections for Jesus? And what robs me of my affections for Jesus? And if you're watching online, please, by all means, put that in the chat. But let's take a quick minute to think about that. Band, if you want to go ahead and come up and, and prepare for our, our final song. Uh, but in the meantime, would anyone be willing to raise their hand and answer the questions, what stirs my affections for Jesus and what robs me of my affections? Do we have anybody on this side? So we have uh, Joan right there. Yeah, and let's keep up the rhythm of like, yeah, let us know your name even though I said your name. Hi, I'm Joan. Hey, Joan. Um, what stirs my affections is uh, fellowship with other believers. Amen. Sharing life together. Yeah. And what robs me of my affections is overly indulging entertainment. Mm, overly indulging entertainment. Yeah, thank you for that, Joan. I'm sure no one else here in here is in that boat, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, Joan, I can assure you you're in good company. Yeah. Joseph? What your hey, what's your name? I know your name, but tell us your name. Aiden. Hey, Aiden. Do you have anything for us? Okay, we're going to come back. To, we, we might come back to Aiden here in a minute. Um, Joseph looks like you got, hey, I know you, but. Yeah. My name is Laura. Hey, Laura. Um, I think what stirs my affections for Jesus, similar to Joan, relationships with other believers and worship and walks with him. Yeah. But what robs me, envy, fear, anger, doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's great. Hi, Christina. Who's got it? Um, hi, my name is Natasha, um, hi, Natasha. And I um, really like when in the morning, like before school, I uh, like just sit with my cereal bowl and then like read the Bible. But also what robs me is like spending too much time um, scrolling Instagram reels the night before. So then I'm too tired to wake up early to have time to eat cereal. So um, oh. it's kind of like a cause and effect scenario. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, so cool. So it's not only the practice of social media, it's the win of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that rob us of sleep and therefore rob us of, uh, you know, yeah, that's good. Really helpful. Hey. Hi, my name is Lacey. Hey, Lacey. Um, I would say driving in the rain, like car rides in the rain, really like kind of being in my head with myself with God is really nice. I see what robs me would be feeding into other people's negativity, trying to be that person for them mm. when you're kind of trying to be that person for yourself. Yeah, so. yeah, taking on burdens when you're already, you haven't taken care of yourself first, right? It's kind of like that um, oxygen mask in airplanes where they talk about, hey, put yours on first so that you can help other people, right? Yeah. Um, Christine, do we have one over here? Are we, no, any takers? We might do two more. Uh, in the meantime, Christina, I'm gonna come here to Joseph. Howdy, I'm Jim. Hey, Jim. All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something that's not passive aggressive, but I am gonna say, rob me of my joy, my lovely wife and my kids. However, what, what shows me, you know, what, what 
inspires me towards Jesus is when I don't think that I'm somebody and I realize I'm nobody, I get to see them how Jesus sees me. Mm. So yeah. it's all about perspective. So it is a perspective thing. So it's not your wife and your kids that rob you of your joy, but it's your perspective, perhaps, your position and your attitude. Yeah. But when you're in your right mind <laughs> and when you walk with Jesus, you can see them in a new light. That's cool. Christina, do we have, I lost you. There we are. Hi, my name's Al. And um, the things that bring me closer is actually solitude. Yeah. Oftentimes out in nature is my, my go-to place. Amen. And just sitting there, um, oftentimes uh, just looking at the splendor. Yeah. I just came back from two weeks in North Dakota out in the middle of nowhere, which we call God's country. Mm -hmm. And it was very, a lot of inward um, thinking mm -hmm. and what, what's important. Mm -hmm. And the things that kind of get in the way is uh, all the noise around us when we hear how bad we have it, how bad uh, the world is. And, you know, if we listen to all that, it'll really bring us down. And what we got to do is just try to sift through that and say, what am I going to do? How am I going to live yeah. my life? And how, what kind of impact does that have? Yeah. Just listening too much to the noise is a real, real hindrance to our life. That's There's so much wisdom in that, brother. Yeah, totally. It's like we could, unless we watch the news prayerfully and, and with our, you know, our, our, our theological hats, all right, it's easy to like be drowned out by the noise, right? But I think it's those times of quiet reflection that help cultivate that character and cultivate those habits that make make that possible. I was in the Rocky Mountains last week, brother. I know what you're talking about with that solitude and like, oh, Jesus, you're, you're so good, right? Yeah, it could be a corner in the room. You're right. So, th hey, thank you for interacting with me. That's so helpful. Uh, Joseph's begging for one more. And since it's Marilyn, I'll let it go. <laughs> My name is Marilyn. <laughs> uh, the thing that robs me is busyness. It's usually yes. nothing major. It's trivia, yeah. the news. Yeah. And over concern for that, concern about what people think yeah. rather than what God thinks. Yeah. And what um, actually keeps me is getting up early and getting in the word. Um, when I have a concern, calling a friend who is a believer and will guide me back to the word. Yeah. <laughs> so those are the things that Amen. truly keep me. So good. So good. Thank you guys for interacting with me with on that because I think what we've identified is um, our weeds in our garden that we need to pluck and the spaces within our garden that we need to cultivate, right? And so um, as the band plays here, we want to, again, offer the uh, opportunity to respond and you can respond with your bodies. If, if this is a day where you're recognizing, okay, I see that, Lord, I have, um, I, I know that you saved me by grace, but Ephesians 2 also says that God has saved us so that we will do these works that he has prepared beforehand for us, right? He saves us to relationship and for responsibility. And so maybe you find yourself like, God, I, I know that you've saved me by grace, but I think that I have put my feet up. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm way too chill about this and I'm not working out my salvation. I'm not cultivating my relationship with you. And, and so maybe today is a day where you want to get back on the right track of that. You're recognizing the weeds and the thorns and the thistles of your life. <coughs> and you want to cultivate the good things and you want to learn to 
practice gratitude, to exchange grumbling and arguing for gratitude. If that is you today, you wanna make that switch because you know it's an important thing for you to shine like the stars in a crooked and wicked generation, then you come today and you ask the Father to join you. You ask the Father to like, yes, you have given me energy and motivation, but awaken that in me so that I can walk with you in that. If that's you as the band plays, these first middle three carpets are for those who are open to having other people pray with you and come alongside you. The outer carpets are for just you and business with God by yourselves. But in this moment, if you wanna express with your body a recommitment to cultivating and displaying what God has worked in you, then you come as we worship.